This is Cabin from The Relentless Picnic. Episode 7. January 2020. So sometime about six days ago, I left the capital city of these United States and came to a house in Maine, a small house, the the very house where I grew up. And I am now currently staying here all by my lonesome. It's not exactly the wilderness, but you know. There was massive amounts of snow on the ground when I got here, and it's cold and enough to like challenge the furnace, and I've had to shovel a few times. So in my home, my childhood home, there's like a water heater in the basement, boiling water and sending steam up through metal pipes to heat the house. And the thing is, there are not radiators in every, like, room of the house. So depending on what fucking room you're in, it could be, like, hot or, like, basically fucking cold. And if you, like, shut the wrong door, you can start fucking up the heat flow. It boggles my mind. There also is a gas fireplace in the living room. But that is near where the, like overall thermostat is so if you put on that delightful fire you trick the house thermostat into thinking like all's well with our steam system you know everything's 70 degrees when really it is just getting the wrong temperature from the the gas fireplace so like anytime you're cozy from the gas fireplace you basically need to get terrified because you're about to confuse the steampunk system so it's almost useless you need to wear, like, a million sweaters. It's very strange to be an adult in this 
rickety sinking ship of a house, which, you know, my mom should not be embarrassed about if she ever listens to what I'm saying. It just, it's kind of a lot. It's why I'm house-sitting for my mom while she's on vacation, is that basically the wilderness of Maine is ready to conquer this house just so fucking easily. If you fuck up at all, it will destroy this house. It really will. They will break the steam system, and it will freeze the pipes, and everything will fall apart. And so... Um, to be quite honest, being alone here, I'm pretty worried I'm going to fuck it up. Dude, like a surprising degree, all I need to do is manage the like heat situation and ideally like don't burn the house down, I guess, or whatever. But, um, I feel like I'm going to fuck it up. I'm like not quote a real man or like a real Mainer or a real American or a real, you know, whatever it is, I'm not capable of fixing things. I know how to know, basically, that this water boiler thing is fucked up. But as far as I understand, like, if I never make it warm enough to make me comfortable, I don't risk overworking the water boiler and embarrassing myself by destroying it. So I'm keeping it absurdly cold, basically. And then periodically turning on the, like, gas fireplace and then in fear shutting it off again. And that is basically the household management I'm doing. That's the economics of Adam. But I'll tell you, um, it's only been six days, so I don't want to get, like, dramatic. But I have never really lived alone before, I think it's fair to say. I uh, divorced kid. I, I used to go back and forth to households of any number of different sizes, bounce around in my life, mostly living with friends. You know, you may have heard I got married at some point, was together with that woman for Seven years, I'm now divorced. Might be worth thinking about the fact that I basically have never lived alone. I, I don't know. That part of where I'm at with my life right now, mess that I am, uh, it, it's a humble, sturdier mess. And um, in this house alone in Maine, if, if that's all I get out of it, like, I'll fucking take it, you know? It is naive to think it likely that technology can be phased out in a smoothly managed, orderly way. Especially since the technophiles will fight stubbornly at every step. Is it therefore cruel to work for the breakdown of the system? Maybe. But maybe not. In the first place, revolutionaries will not be able to break the system down unless it is already in enough trouble, so that there will be a good chance of its eventually breaking down by itself anyway. And the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the consequences of its breakdown will be. So it may be that revolutionaries, by hastening the onset of the breakdown, will be reducing the extent of the disaster. In the second place, one has to balance struggle and death against the loss of freedom and dignity. 
To many of us, freedom and dignity are more important than a long life or avoidance of physical pain. Besides, we all have to die sometime, and it may be better to die fighting for survival or for a cause than to live a long but empty and purposeless life. Theodore Kaczynski, 1995. I'm so ready for critique of technology and modern industrial society that's like thorough and numbered and really doing like the kind of work that you can't expect the public to read unless you've murdered people. I was like so ready for that. And I just found this to be such a disappointing bit of writing that is was so yep. weird and not illuminating even there there are just times where i just i found him to be really unpleasant and lacking humanity and oh, yeah. there are times i just was like dude even if his idea here is right he doesn't have it he doesn't have the argument for it his use of the word system throughout this is just Ugh. so frustrating a lot of my notes are about how He's argued himself into a corner where a thorough critical appraisal of the system and its mechanisms is altogether appropriate. And he doesn't, it's not even that he doesn't seem capable of doing it. He doesn't, but he doesn't even seem aware of that as a possible task. He's not attentive to individual technologies. He does not seem to even regard them as worthy of that kind of attention. The notion of an individual critique of a certain technological artifact or even a movement does not make sense to him. I don't think he's read anything, really. I mean, I don't even know. He does bring up historical touchstones, and I do think Marx gets name-dropped once or twice, but... No. When I like looked up the Amish or whatever, the telephone is the first thing they reject, the Amish. And they reject labor-saving devices. And their reason is, according to Wikipedia or whatever, that it promotes individuality and hurts your connection to the community to be using technology that frees you up for time and so empowers you that you're more likely to take an individualist worldview. And it occurs to me that that's the opposite of what Ted seems to be saying, which is weird. Ted doesn't actually make the case for the relationship between technology and community, technology and individuality. It's not obvious at all, his conclusions. Individual. I wonder what he would think about even the term individuality because it's it's weirdly absent, and yet it seems like autonomy is is sort of a stand-in for individual freedom, which might take the place of individuality. He's also just not that interested in technology. You know, like if this is the thing that's ruining the world, it kind of behooves him to pay attention to its like features and how it acts, but he just wants to treat it as this monolith that has to be chopped down. So, what about paragraph two hundred seven? That didn't, uh, I was so happy to come near the end of this long, sprawling essay, many paragraphs of which have to do only with his hatred of leftists. I was very happy to arrive at a paragraph that was uh, headed by the phrase two kinds of technology. I was like, okay, finally, he's going to get into the way that technology works. Uh, this, this didn't yeah. resolve your worry? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this fucking thing. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's really 208 that has the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two kinds of technology. His two kinds of technology are small scale and organization dependent. Small scale technology is technology that can be used by small scale communities without outside assistance. Organization dependent technology is technology that depends on large scale social organization. 
But it's it's such a stupid distinction because it's a completely sliding scale between like the people I need to help me make a loom and the people I need to help me make an integrated circuit, you know? Yeah, it struck me as a particularly useless distinction. I mean, I know what he's talking about when he says nowadays we need tools to make the tools that make the tools. But he does not seem to really spend time thinking about the root use of technology as a concept for a dude who has made that the titular subject of his ire. Yeah, I, I, don't understand. I don't know what to do with a guy who's not interested in the essence of his main topic. It would be a really compelling argument to talk about how human individuality, as experienced by human individuals, changed as technology became more and more of a force in their lives. And he's just kind of very flat and, you know, uh, legislative about it, that it got worse. But to really understand how and why and what the, like, steps were, that would be a very, very compelling argument to make. I mean, I don't know if he thinks a shovel is technology, but it seems to me there is, at some point, you start talking about technologies that are different than just basic tools, and I'm not sure where that line is or where he thinks it is, but as you, like, move in, it seems like the introduction of those of certain technologies does start to change how we perceive the world. The telephone like changes our sense of distance and mm -hmm. where other people are in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. The way that he slices up technology makes it so hard to know what he thinks about a shovel because it's all about the networks of dependencies to get the materials even for the technology. Like he talks, his his example of refrigeration is an organization dependent technology because you can't like source the fucking hydrofluorocarbons yourself. And in the, in that view, almost everything is an organization-dependent technology nowadays, yeah. right? A hundred percent. That's exactly right. I mean, that's that's the thing about a modern, globalized, like capitalist economy that I feel like is worth noting. I mean, it's true. There's also like managed economies with quotas, blah blah. But dude, the whole thing is you can't make a pencil without like right. on your own. You can't source it all. I mean, maybe in the most generous reading, that's his beef, right? Globalization, like a lot of people. In the 90s, especially in the NAFTA era, like his his beef is sort of that we have made a he's not speaking about it in capitalist terms, but we've made essentially like a capitalist network that is all dependent on each other that you can't make a yeah. shovel nowadays. Does he believe that uh, technological advancement is a disaster because it will collapse in and of itself? Or does he believe that it's just a problem having to do with human freedom? Technological society for him means a forcibly interconnected society, which is part of the problem that he rails against. He says the system tries to solve the problem of that like interconnectedness and how people are excluded from their own decision making. The system tries to solve this problem by using propaganda to make people want the decisions that have been made for them. But even if this solution were completely successful in making people feel better, it would be demeaning. Yeah, in paragraph 174, that one that gets quoted by Bill Joy, where he says that in the future, even if things go great, humanity will be the status of domestic animals, right? Like that seems to imply it could go on, but humanity as he sees it will just get more and more degraded until it ceases to exist. He actually says like, the system is creating a, a situation where we're all going to be driving each other around in taxi cabs mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. which did strike me as somewhat ironic and, and accurate. That part is one of the stronger parts where he's talking about a future in which we are only dedicating ourselves to service and we'll be as competitive or as compliant as we need to be in order to like beg for our scraps. One of the weird things about his concern with freedom is he seems to see freedom as an incredibly fragile 
wild thing. Almost everything you can think of in society, he is citing as something that takes away individual freedom. This is from 94, real quick. One does not have freedom if anyone else, especially a large organization, has power over one, no matter how benevolently, tolerantly, and permissively that power may be exercised, Mm -hmm. period. If anyone or any organization has any kind of power over you, you are not free. Now, that's indistinguishable, true or false, that's indistinguishable from living in a society. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's it's just very simplistic and sort of adolescent to believe that you can have no obligations that might, on a very surface level, limit your freedom, but in a larger sense, like, make you more free. But, I mean, it's like, maybe we're just, like, too sheepified, man. Like, maybe we're just too in it. Like, he looks at anyone doing anything that's not uh, survival-related and basically says, like, they're just surrogating their power process and they're unfree mm-hmm. and they don't even know it. One of the things I found very frustrating about that whole surrogate activity versus actual real survival shit is how arbitrary it is that he has decided that there's a hierarchy there where one is like such bullshit and one is super real when like you could obviously believe that following the necessities of life is smaller and they're like creating art is a much higher thing to do, not just some weak ass surrogate activity. He doesn't make an argument to support the value system that he like is adopting. His main rhetorical argument is that industrial society is going to collapse. And so we should do it soon rather than later. But there's no attempt to say like, you know, and the thing that'll come after will be fantastic. Like we'll have nature again, like deer will walk through creeks and like sight of us or whatever. The pleasure he seems to be trying to protect in nature is like articulated nowhere, right? Yeah, I mean, toward the end, he seems to say like all revolutionary movements have to have like two poles. Mm-hmm. One a thing that you're railing against and that you're railing for. And we pick nature for the thing that we're we're railing for. I mean, nature in that cynical way might not be anything more than like a symbolic, like rallying cry for his anti-technology right. yeah. desires. He, he might have no pleasure in it. I don't think he actually does value nature particularly. I mean, I think he's in the cabin to avoid crowding and other people. He is confusing isolation with freedom. If you answer to anybody in any respect, uh, even to like interact and some, you know, put your fucking blinker on. He seems to believe like this is a major attack on your freedom. But I think that has to do a lot more with his how uncomfortable he is with other people. Yeah. Can I ask a question of like, what is the future that Ted wants or something? Like, what does he really want? What does he want America to look like if he gets his way? I think he wants it to be full of people who. Um, no longer have to suppress their individual wills in a collective project and can instead do it by like chopping wood or, you know, contemplating the stars or something all alone. So is there a government? Mm-mm. No. No. He wants society as we know it to fall apart and to return to a hunter-gathering, small-scale, like primitive society. Yeah. That's that's what he that's what he wants. He wants he wants what Tyler Durden wants in Fight Club basically. That's what I think. So I think I mean it, it's that is anarchism, right? Or anarcho-primitivism or something. I I mean anarchism is anarcho-primitivism. That's the nature <laughs> of anarchy, I would claim. 
Don't tell an anarchist. I don't think he is actually that positive about this vision of society falling apart and uh, hunting elk on the superhighway or whatever. I think he's just doesn't like what we have and would rather die fighting it and thinks there's a good chance it would be better. But even if it's not better, fuck it. He doesn't like civilization. I think Mm -hmm. fundamentally it's a negative view. I'm glad you brought up the point where he says it might be better to die fighting this thing than to live a purposeless right. life. In the in the great words of Henry David Thoreau, the Unabomber seems to agree that like a real purpose and responding to a real calling might be more noble than living sort of dr- dreary, unquestioning lives, right? Yeah, I, I almost wonder if he's like homicidally jealous of somebody like Thoreau, where Thoreau can derive all the fucking meaning Thoreau needs by, you know, turning over a rock and looking at the ants underneath it and enraptured, right? And I don't think Ted has that kind of relationship with the nature he's killing people to protect. No, I think he's only a worshiper of nature in insofar as he needs it for PR. And also maybe he can sort of glom a lot of what he likes about being alive under the heading of nature. Because clearly what he what he thinks we, he likes about being alive is sort of like fighting for his own survival in a non-surrogated way that involves his power process actually being active. But in terms of what he's bombing to protect, I don't think he's trying to protect anything. I think he is just like... I think he just is pissed off he can't be all the way alone. The things that he talks about for the power process, your survival needs, rather than seeing that as sort of basic requirements, animalistic necessities, he sees it as this like ultra grounded, noble, authentic way of living. And that reversal allows him to then like dismiss literally all activities beyond that, beyond trying to live in your little hut. It's amazing to me that he doesn't consider or seem to be bothered by the possibility that it is his isolation itself that makes him need to fucking do this. Yeah, no, and and that would that would mean admitting he's wrong about all of this. And I don't think he's willing to do that, but I also think it might just be a long protracted suicide as mm-hmm. well. I mean, at one point he says when I'm caught, hopefully not alive. Uh, exclamation point. In, in that respect, it is. I, it makes sense to me as a product in some ways of isolation because mm-hmm. you, when you don't subject your ideas to anyone for any extended period of time, you just like a, are allowed to sort of build ornate additions onto them. Then the things become more and more cemented and, and more and more, you become more and more like indefatigable in your belief of them, which is not a healthy way to be, period. Right. And then when you talk about his isolation, I don't think we're talking about the isolation that started when he moved to that cabin. He's moving to the cabin because he's already isolated, right? It was pretty pretty amazing experience to go up there and see how he was living. The cabin was was really small. I imagine basically uh, almost the size of the standard bedroom, if you will, was the was the size of it, um, with an upstairs uh, attic crawl space area that he had stuff. And uh, so to see in this remote cabin in the, in the woods, kind of just stuck in the middle of this, this uh, open area, surrounded by trees, kind of off the beaten path a little bit. It was on a driveway that led up to a couple other homes. So it wasn't completely isolated and remote. It was accessible by roads that led into town, which was Lincoln, Montana. March, 2020. 
Yeah, so just just quick background on me. I, I was with the FBI for 20 years uh, here in Los Angeles and um, worked you know, a, a variety of um, uh, white-collar cases. Then I got into violent crimes and was with the SWAT team for, for most of my career. And that's really what led me to be involved with the, um, the Unabomber case was just because we did uh, security after the arrest was made. We stayed at the cabin and primarily to keep the press away. That was really my involvement with this case was more on that. I was aware of it. I was familiar with it, obviously, because it was the, at the time um, the largest investigation, longest investigation. Uh, the FBI really worked uh, for over all those years trying to figure out who this guy was. But I personally was not involved with that investigative side of it. Um, it was all that. By the time I got there, they had already conducted multiple search warrants on the on the cabin. Obviously, identified a lot of the uh, components and things that went into his bomb making. Some of the writings that he had. Um, so when I got there, actually a chain link fence had been put up around the cabin. A lot of issues with people just trying to come in and see it. We were really more public uh, control than we were anything else when we were there by the time I got there, which was a week or two after he was arrested. But when I was there, we, we, uh, the decision was made to take the cabin off the mountain. So I was part of that team that actually helped prep the cabin. Uh, we had to go in and we uh, inventoried everything that was left inside the cabin. And so that was interesting to see that. And then we pulled the, the cabin off the mountain with the, put it on skids and just pulled down down the mountain with a, a tractor. Well, I was on top of the cabin strapping it down. Um, <laughs> you know, like, wow. So it's it, we, we were very involved with that. Being such a well-educated person, obviously he was a very, he was a very bright guy and went squirrely. And then he, he was working at a university up at Berkeley. I mean, he, he had an amazing you know career start off for, for such a young guy. Um, then to just unplug and go live like that for anybody to live like that is, is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I mean, he had no power, um, had a big, um, wood burning stove, uh, fire stove inside the cabin. And, uh, he had these, all these shelves that he built and on the shelves, I mean, there was just hundreds of little bottles that contained and everything is very well labeled, you know, carrot seeds and he labeled month and, and year that he harvested those seeds from whatever year he had. He had rabbit's feet that he used for toilet paper. Um, just trying to be self-sufficient and and have all the things that he would need to survive. What was it sort of like to be you emotionally as you're coming on the scene and looking around? Yeah, you know, it, it was, uh, you, you feel like you're part of history, I guess. And just being able to firsthand touch and feel um, where this guy lived, get a little bit of a sense of what he was doing. Um, you know, obviously learning the background on the investigation and learning subsequently you know, I was very interested after the fact on some of the, the things that he would say, uh, how he lived. Those things were all, you know, to be able to have that firsthand just kind of gives you a feeling of, of some type of closure for you, at least an understanding. But I also understood that my role was, was somewhat marginalized. So I, if I had been part of the investigative team and, 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 and worked all those years, it would have been a much different feeling for me personally. Being a part of the bigger you know, FBI and being part of the, the, the pride of that organization after all those years coming to that conclusion. I was very proud to be part of it, for sure. The FBI is interesting, you know, in, in that, you know, the, the, the cases are made, you know, from, from agents who work hard, right? And, and, and each and, and agent has, has their involvement. But the case belongs to the FBI. And there was a level, level of uh, passion and drive by the folks that were working that, that, you know, it, it, it's, it's a... Uh, I don't know how to explain that. It's, it's, the, it's the hunt. You know, I, I think it was Hemingway said, nothing better than hunting a man, right? 
And, uh, and that's part of it is that that hunt and that, that chase and hoping that you can come with that one piece of evidence that'll turn the table on identifying this guy. Have, have you personally read uh, the, the, the manifesto, Ted's manifesto? Not, not in entirety. I've, I've read snippets and just to yeah. get an understanding of what, you know, try to understand what his motivations were. Um, you know, I, I deal with a lot of things now, even the private sector dealing with, you know, stalkers and other things that come across our table now with my company and, and everybody wants to try to understand why someone does something. Well, we're not going to a lot of times because we're not, we're not thinking like them. We don't have whatever it is that's causing them to be kind of off the, the line of normal thinking. And so when you're dealing with trying to evaluate that understanding that, you know, why or how you read in that manifesto helps give some insight as to how he was thinking, but it doesn't for me equate to, Oh, I understand that. Now. You know, it, like, I don't think like he does, but I understand his motivations. I don't agree with them, but, but that's, that's the only value that had. And obviously the value of that manifesto at the end of it all was it helped help us identify who it was. Right. You know, technology changes every day and, 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 and candidly, you know, our criminals, you know, are always one step ahead on those changes. February 2020. Ken, we spoke to you once before. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing this with us again. My pleasure. I have a burning question for you. I think we all have the same burning question. Ken, how did you come to acquire books that were previously owned by Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> so a ghost of my past is that I was acting full time for film and television. Um, I was working for an employer named uh, Walt Disney Incorporated, who I don't love. So I was being paid too much to do a job that I didn't like or respect. And I didn't, by extension, like or respect myself because I'm a good little Protestant uh, who, you know, connects too much of his identity to his job. Anyway, so I'm being paid too much. And I don't know how I found out about an online auction of Kaczynski's personal effects from his cabin from which he was caught and seized. Um, <laughs> you know, I had been uh, like a minor Kaczynski enthusiast as a teenager. And so I found out about this auction and I clicked on it. And it was hosted by the General Services Administration. So this auction was to uh, benefit. Ted's victims. So I started to scan through it. The thing I was really interested in was the first draft of industrial society and its future. Um, but that quickly, um, like flew into the tens of thousands of dollars. And even with my silly, um, paychecks, I, I wasn't willing to go that far. So I was looking at other things and I found, uh, a modestly quote unquote, a modestly priced lot and it was for um, five paperback books found in his cabin. And I bid on it. And then somebody outbid me and I bid on it again. And this went back and forth. And I thought, damn, I really want these books. 
and I won eventually. And I have the the little document, the purchaser's receipt and authority to release property here Ooh. for government exhibit 18 2041 N. Uh, and lovely, a lovely woman named Tanya Dillard, who works at the General Services Administration, sent me this receipt. And apparently I paid $2,528 uh, for, for these books. And the, the, the property description says, uh, Kaczynski had a rather extensive collection of books in his Montana cabin. The books included these titles, which had special relevance to the Unabom investigation and federal search warrant to enter Kaczynski's Montana cabin. And then the book titles, Chinese political thought in the 20th century, the ancient engineers, the technological society, the true believer and violence in America. So I mailed a check and my friend lives in Atlanta. And this is where the GSA, uh, at least some of the GSA headquarters are, are located in Atlanta. So I I said, hey, can you go pick up the Unabomber's books and mail them to me? <laughs> and he said, sure. And then I I received a, a FedEx package with this very serious looking at like thick Ziploc evidence bag <laughs> full, full of five um, pretty beaten up paperback books and you know, they've got Ted's handwriting in them and his little underlines and notes. And um, it's very quaint. Do they smell like wood smoke? No, the actually, city? they just smell like old book. They, you know, they smell like degrading pulp. Um, uh. I mean, this was in 2011. So, Jesus, um, I was 21, you know, and being paid too much. And uh, I thought, yeah, I'm going to channel some of Disney's money into the dark arts. Let's <laughs> fucking do this. Um, so that's how I own them. And a sense I've tried to sell them, um, because I don't need them, uh, nor do I really admire Ted anymore. Um, and, uh, nobody will buy them. Uh, it's, it's pretty great. It's just, it's, it's a really good piece of evidence about the, the, the truth of the claim that it's so much easier to get yourself into something than it is to get yourself out of something. Mm. My wife also last night tried to convince me to just mail them to you all as like a surprise. And I'm still considering that. So just beware. Did you spend any time sort of thumbing through the books? Are there are there particular annotations or additions, additions that are that are interesting about Ted's sort of time with these books that you noticed? Yeah, let me let me crack open this bag here. I have it next yeah. to me. Um um, and, you know, just to, to kind of qualify, like these books are are well, actually, Chinese political thought in the 20th century is in pretty neat shape. And the true believers, not in terrible shape, although that book is notoriously bound really poorly. But the other three are really fucked up. I mean, they're they look bad. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would say that you have the Jacques Ellul book that maybe is one of his primary influences. Yeah. In technological society. And this book is very worn. Um, oh, he, th this book is, is pretty, pretty well worn, but it's kind of strange because the outside, the cover and the spine are very fucked up looking, but the, the interior pages for the most part are pretty clean. Um, mm. which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yes. didn't really read it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. The poser. There are very few places, uh, in which there's any sort of marginalia whatsoever. There's on page 20. Um, which I think is the first bit of, yeah, the first marked section in the book. Um, there's a sentence in the first full paragraph that's underlined and it says the skilled worker, like the primitive huntsman remains a technical operator. Their attitudes differ only to a small degree. 
So that's that's underlined. That's also there was um, the book came with a piece of paper uh, being used as like a temporary bookmark, um, and it, that hasn't moved from where it was when I received the books in the mail. There's a little bit of dirt on quite a few of the pages in his thumbprint. You can see his thumbprints like here and there, uh, dirty Whoa. thumbprints. I'm just—he's not notorious for leaving uh, some prints behind. No, he, there, are, there are scores of people in the United States government who hope to one day see a dirty thumbprint, and you—you you have. Yeah. I guess I have it. Um, I'm just scanning through this rest of the book because I think there's only maybe one to two other places in here that he actually marked. I mean, wow, that's so embarrassing for him. I know. Reading mm-hmm. it, you—you you wouldn't think he actually read it. Like. He he does have tons of marginalia in the True Believer, the Eric Hoffer book, and most of Ted's marginalia is pretty critical. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the other books, yeah, I mean Chinese political thought in the twentieth century. There are some little places in which he's underlined, but this one uh, is very clean. Oh boy, I just found a, I think a pretty juicy one here. This is in um, the History of Violence in America. I don't know. This is pretty heartbreaking to me. Uh, this, this is page 694. It's the beginning of a paragraph. It's all underlined, um, but then there's a piece of marginalia that I'll leave as the punchline. So it says, the crucial point is this. No human being, so long as he lives, is ever completely gratified in the satisfaction of his needs. Up to the moment of his death, he must eat and sleep. He must be with people. He has to be acknowledged as a distinct person. And he must realize his individual potential. And in the margin, uh, in all capital letters with an exclamation mark, is the word false. Yeah. Yeah. One, his life is to set out to disprove that in some ways, but also his claim that all these people who get all their needs met all the time and so are have to do surrogate activity or some other bullshit mm-hmm. is dramatically contradicted by the claim that actually our needs are not always met. It's a constant process. We'll never be able to get what we need. I mean, I can totally, that makes perfect sense to me that he would have to write false, yep. both on a personal level and philosophically. Yeah. Because it's a threat to him. Like, I mean, he just has to write it off. Otherwise, he has to start taking other people seriously in some more meaningful way than he's willing to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's like a seriously deadly threat for Ted to have to think about where he is and what he's doing in any critical way at all. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, that to me is just the piece of marginalia that the most exemplifies his loneliness. It's almost performative. Like, he knew someday people were going to find his books and he wanted to be on the record. Like, yeah. I don't agree. It was for you, Ken. It yeah. was for you. Maybe it was for me. Oh, boy. I learned this quickly when I retired and became a private investigator. There's no, nothing more powerful than the federal government standing behind you when you stand at the door and you hold up the FBI credentials. I mean, that's a reputation that was built well before I got there that allowed us to have that, that mystique, um, right for good or bad. You know, people, when you show up at the door, I don't care if you're the, the local gangbanger or you're the head of the CEO of a big company, the FBI knocks the door, people take notice. For whatever reason, you know, probably because TV shows or whatever silliness was was back when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an FBI agent. You know, when I was a young adult and I applied to the FBI and went through the process, I don't, I can say right now, I didn't really know what that meant. I, I like the idea of, of, of right and the wrong. I always felt that way when I was a kid. If kids were picked on in the playground or whatever, I always felt this sense of trying to help help people. So that part 
was a, an inner you know, drive for me. Um, but I always said, and, and, and I don't, sometimes I, I don't like to say these things because it sounds a little bit, um, I don't know if it's arrogant or what, but I found what I was supposed to do, you know, particularly with the SWAT team. That was for whatever reason, you know, I, I remember reading something that Michael Jordan said about, you know, everything just, you know, when he's playing basketball and, and how great he was and, and, and everything just kind of slowed down and just, you know, it was just natural for him. I felt the same way um, when, when I was doing things like squat. The two things I miss the most is, is one, the, 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 the sense of mission and purpose. Uh, I love what I'm doing right now. I have a great time running our company and we do a lot of great investigative work. But compared to feeling that righteous chase of, of somebody who did something really bad to someone, the sense of mission is not the same. And, and I think part of it's the training, part of it's the teamwork, and the part of the folks you're with. You're so focused on the job and the mission and what's the next step, what should we do next, that even with our SWAT things, and we arrested you know, you know, hundreds of, of very violent criminals, I never really thought, I thought about it from the standpoint, let's prepare, let's be focused, but it was always mission-driven. So you, you kind of flip that switch and you're just focused on the mission. Um, there are some cases we get involved with where my clients have been victimized, so I still get that a little bit. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is the camaraderie, particularly for me, I was very fortunate to be with our SWAT team and, and the, the bonds I have with those guys, you know, run deep and they'll run with me the rest of my life. You know, my, my closest friends all, all were born out of the SWAT team and, and just that, that camaraderie and that, um, even just my little piece with Unabomber, get involved with things that are, are so, so newsworthy. It's just a, a prideful thing and to be able to share it with guys who are like-minded, motivated, um, driven, um, nothing better than standing, standing shoulder to shoulder with guys like that. And I miss that. The best cases that the FBI has ever done is because of, because of, of, of the people, the agents that are out there working it. And it's all part of this, this pride in, in what they do. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have been part of that. And now I had, there's agents that were just unbelievably excellent. And there were agents that were, you know, quite frankly, mediocre, you know, but they were all good people. You know, and that's the one thing I could leave a $20 bill on my desk for six months and no one's going to take it. You get they're really good people, and they all have a sense of, of care and concern for those around them and other people, and, and that's the part that I really enjoyed being part of. And there's that 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 component was consistent, and then you get a group of like-minded guys that are really motivated, that like to work cases and want to do SWAT, and you're, you're getting you know to me for my personality. I'm getting in that one percent of people that I, you know, I can swim with, and this is this is my group because I, I just, it, 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 for me, it just motivated me even more to be around those kind of guys. And I was lucky. I, I tell my kids this, you know, I don't want them to settle, but you know, they got to show up and go to work somewhere. And you, you know, can't just wait for that golden dream in case it never comes. But you know, always be, be true to yourself, and, and don't be afraid to, to pursue the things that that motivate and drive you because, you know, for 20 years, I, and as they say, I didn't go to work one day, you know, it was the greatest career. And I, and I, I spent, you know, 12, 14 hours a day doing it. And I never felt once like I was working. The FBI is just incredibly incompetent. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't have believed it before I saw my case from the inside, how incompetent these people are. There, you know, there's that one line in the the manifesto. It's like 185. It's, I think, it's a little bit notorious because it has the idiom, you know, you can't eat your cake and have it too, as opposed to the other way around. And I guess that helped people hunt him down. But uh, 
the whole line is, uh, as for the negative consequences of eliminating industrial society, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. To gain one thing, you have to sacrifice another. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've encountered very many senses that allied uh, death in a way that that sentence allied death. Yeah. I think at one point I thought, yeah, this seems obviously true to me that we're living in a culture of death and that culture is premised uh, and propped up primarily by tools and mm-hmm. that the tools are sort of killing us. But then I got chronically ill and uh, suddenly my thoughts about what level of technological sophistication is good or bad, have, uh, they changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. when I came to rely on technological sophistication not to die. So I think that, you know, like accelerationist arguments, you know, always crave a kind of death in the way that, you know, futurist arguments crave a kind of death. Um, but like the back to nature accelerationist arguments really are ableist as fuck. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they, I, I, you know, you just, you have the fact that the poor and sick among us, those people get fucked first. That that has made me really um, come to not admire his thinking really at all, uh, because mm-hmm. I think that it is so dismissive of life. Uh, and you know, the, if the whole argument is, oh, we gotta, we actually have to affirm life, and this is my uh, contrarian way of you know opening people up to the truth. I just don't. I'm sick of the means the same old means. I think that if you're doing anything with the means of those who you despise, uh, you're boring. And we've been doing that shit for 4,000 years. And we actually have to reform the means if we want to do anything. Well, I don't know. So to me, it's like not interesting anymore. You know, what, where it once was interesting to me, it's as boring as any other cruelty or fascism. That's just been, you know, a, a day-to-day thing. Uh, I think that he desired, change so deeply that he probably convinced himself the only way he could achieve it is like becoming this folk hero and um i i don't know folk heroes who blow people up um Mm -hmm. is sort of the logic of death is all hidden in there yeah you know just the idea of retreat from this thing that you think of as is bad i like to think presages the fact that you are gonna like if not kill people as as ted did at least abet all sorts of death mm-hmm. from your little cabin in the woods anyway i like it's it's a rotten seed if you're doing violence to maintain the belief that you or your your cronies are superior to others um that that's fascism and that logically the end of fascism is to kill everyone else that isn't you it, to think of yourself as a prophet in any secular context immediately strips away the possibility of any other life being sacred. So you, you already, you know, you're, you're fucking good to go. You got the green light. And then to pair that with advocating for violence, um, and violence is the only way to solve the problem of death and affirm the status of life. I, I think, yeah, I just, I don't see Ted harboring any love for any individual, uh, period. He stands in for all those who, you know, want a fundamental change and want to affirm life, but who are unwilling to do the extremely hard and pitiless work of pursuing life by life's means and not pursuing life by death's means.
we've already seen that we can, we can do it. Um, it just, I don't know, it's really hard. And I think it's a lot easier to run, to run and hide. You know, you see this everywhere. You see it in obviously all of the like accelerationist nerd thinking now. And I think you see it in the bring back the guillotine, uh, Twitter herds. Um, and I, and I say that with great compassion. Like I, I used to be one. A question I was thinking about asking you before that, that the three of us have talked about and I was reminded of when you brought up the guillotine is like if Ted had bombed different people, like if he only targeted destroyers, mm-hmm. if he bombed only fossil fuel executives or deforesters or colonizers in some way, would we would we look at it differently? Yeah, because because I think the very elegant way in which you were talking about the logic of death being present in, in his ethos would still be there even if you were bombing the right people yeah i mean i i don't know who the we is there like i i feel like i would you know a few years ago i probably would have been i would have celebrated that um and just that phrase like a person can kill the right kind of people that already as soon as you buy into that you're sunk you are just another product of the same boring ass history I mean, and I, I saw on Twitter recently, like somebody sort of wondering aloud, like, what are we going to think when, you know, some 17 year old like decapitates a fossil fuel exec The the tweet was implying that we should get our head, we should, we should try to understand how we're going to feel in advance about that and like have some sort of judgment ready to go about it. And I just felt like when I read that, I felt so much fucking anguish for that person who who articulated that thought you are already trapped your foot is already in the fucking snare if you think that you you have to formulate a judgment about that thing that event Mm -hmm. like the judgment is obvious it's such a poverty of thinking to try to believe that no matter how righteous your cause is, that the only realms are the realm of words and the realm of like murder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That there be no other action. The sword and the pen. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's it. That's if you don't have the pen, it's time to use the sword. I mean, if there if only murder and like tweets were our options. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that fossil fuel tweet really is positing a world where like yeah. listen get your tweets ready yeah. for this murder <laughs> yeah it's like really because I'm really hoping the fucking 17 year olds have better ideas than our parents did <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> let alone better ideas than like you know a French peasant who's fucking starving <laughs> yeah Ken because you're tied into the system medically in a way that most people aren't do you imagine that or like worry about the fact that there's some thing like an insurance company could do to you that would reignite all of this like stuff that is latent in everyone, I think. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll just be totally honest with you. Um, every time that I have to change insurance companies, I want to fucking kill somebody. Like, and I, and I say that with total honesty and weight. This is not me using hyperbole and this is not me being idiomatic. Like, I immediately in those moments of stress and feeling so vulnerable and feeling so enslaved that my body is just totally reliant on the whims of my masters or whatever, I say and grant the goodness of killing. And um, to me, this is the biggest problem that I have existing in America because I am brought constantly to 
the desire to kill and thinking that like, yeah, it's good and right. Uh, and that these people should be fucking dead. All that sort of pain and frustration and, and really like some, you know, dark fucking thoughts. Um, I, you know, I've either done one of two things. Like I try to convert it into some kind of action, you know, like doing something for Medicare for all or doing something political on a local scale, or even just like, trying to turn all that frustration into some sort of public articulation of why this sucks, you know, so I'll write something and publish it or whatever. But, you know, in by doing that, I move myself away from violence and move myself towards something that is more, I think, social, ultimately. Uh, I don't know, trying to like cook more often. (laughs) Well, that's cool. What are you cooking? Uh, I'm trying to like learn how to be an adult and, um, I guess adults cook regularly um, and they don't. Do. Yeah, so yeah, I've I, heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, so adults uh, love that, man. They love it. They fucking love it. And I'm not like I'm trying not to really fetishize. I'm just trying to to meet that basic human need, um, <laughs> which will never satisfy me, according to some people. <laughs> uh, and according to other people, that's false. <laughs> yeah, false. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Is, is there anything you wish, in all your experiences dealing with criminals over these years, is there anything you wish you could like say to some particularly frustrated person who's listening to this podcast right now? That you could be like, listen, I, I was around a million criminals. Just remember this one thing. Just keep this one thing in mind. It's interesting because that's the one thing that I've always said in dealing with my subjects and everything. I always felt no matter what, you know, I'm always going to treat them fairly like humans. In fact, I had a couple trials with this one female prosecutor, and, and she one time there was a little intermission session, you know, when the court the jury was out, and the defendant looked over at me and said, "Hey, Pat, how you doing?" And, and I had my son, a ten year old son, in the courtroom. Is that your son? He's talking to me like that, and I said, "Yeah, we were talking." And then the attorney looked at me and said, "How come these guys all like you?" And I said, "You know, I, I, I treat them like humans. I mean, they made a mistake. They're going to have to deal with it. I'm not going to, you know, back off on that. But I'm going to treat them like humans. I'm going to talk about their family and all these things." So the one thing with that is the compassion that you have for people and the understanding that, that people are going to make mistakes. I don't necessarily judge them. Now, I do think there's people who, for whatever reason, you know, they're not going to change, right? You know, it's understanding that you're responsible for your actions, regardless of what you want to use and as an excuse as to how you got there. And whether you be, you, you got raised, you know, in a wealthy family and you had everything given to you or whether you grew up in the inner city I think everybody has the opportunity to make that decision. That's what's the great thing about this country. You have the ability yourself to make the decisions and work. It may take harder work for some people than others because of your circumstances. But if you work hard towards doing the right thing, good things will happen. We have a huge problem in this country with socioeconomic issues in the inner city. And I, you know, I talk to these people and I go in and, and we do these arrests and I see these little kids and it would tear me apart You know, because I think about my kids. But those kids still have the opportunity to, to make a decision themselves. So the one thing I would hope is that somebody, anybody who's out there working with the community, you know, continue to show them that there's hope and there's a path and that you can do it. You, you have to do it. And I almost feel like you have to be tough on them. Say, look, I don't care that your dad is in jail. OK, 
Okay. It's sad. It's horrible. But what are you going to do about it? You got to show up tomorrow and live. And I think sometimes we as a country tend to coddle that more than we should. Um, help people great, but force them to help themselves. That's that's my philosophy. And whether it's right or not, I don't know. But that's how I think. Neighborliness or something. It, you know, but but it works both ways. You know, neighborly. I, I shared another story. You know, I had a, a homeless individual living by my house up where I live in, in Ventura County, and uh, the guy just got more and more aggressive. Um, but law enforcement would never do anything about him. He came up to my door window one day with my kids in the car. Um, had a lot of issues with him just in camping right behind my. And this is a really nice little subdivision. You know, it's not like the inner city, but that doesn't matter, I guess. But you know, the guy had mental issues, and he was kind of to the point starting to if you will, not only to say terrorize, that's a pretty extreme word, but causing problems in the neighborhood and law enforcement wouldn't do anything. So it works both ways. You can be kind to a point, but if someone's not going to fit in and, and, and be part of the community and, and help the community and it's all about them and they're, they're now disrupting the community, we've got to come up with ways to fix that too. So it works both ways. You give people opportunity, but if they don't want to play well and, and then the one person's affecting 99 people, you know, we as a community need to stand up too. And I think we've lost a little bit of that too. The individuals override everything else. And I think it works both on both sides, 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 both sides. Take us, for example, FC. If we had never done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have been accepted. He didn't even try. <laughs> if they had been accepted and published, they probably would not have attracted many readers because it's more fun to watch entertainment put out by the media than to read a sober essay. One of the things he's grappling with is his own intellectual insecurity. And then he's also worried about publishing something and no one reads it. He's worried about, I think, how bad that would feel. Yeah. yeah. So he wants to get in mass media. And he's like, because a lot of people would rather read mass media than a sober essay. That's why I turned your mass media into a sober essay today. I think what it, what he is happening in this paragraph is he's saying, okay, it's more fun to do entertainment than to read sober essays. However, violence... Our yeah. violence has changed that equation somehow. It's the violence doesn't have a purpose, except it does to you, dear reader. You're reading this because you care about the violence, right? Yeah. Can we really talk about the last line of 96? In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people. Yeah. Do you guys think that the, the document is more important to him than killing people? I, I really do think this is a particularly cowardly way to kill people mm -hmm. and that his desire to kill people might have been itself very, very subsidiary to like desire to like prove how smart he was or desire to reach out and fuck over those San Francisco leftists or whatever. Like mm -hmm. I, I, right. I don't see in him a great desire to kill people at all. I wonder though, like it's a very strange act to have these 14 bombs over whatever it is, like 20 years. I think there's like an irony that's being enjoyed too about the fact that, I mean, to some extent, a bo these bombs are intricate technological devices, right? I just think like if I send a present to a friend of mine in the mail, right, I'm excited about that thing passing through space to get to them, to like produce an effect or like make them happy or whatever. I find it so hard to imagine that if I sent a bomb to somebody, I wouldn't be like 
intensely fixated on the fact that I had done something that was going to make an effect happen. Like if all of us now have to live being affected by the decisions made by distant people, we have no chance of influencing Mm-hmm. Like that feels unfair to him and he's outraged by it and he's giving them a little taste of their own fucking medicine by mm-hmm. being that same kind of force on his chosen people. Like, oh, you think you got a book in the mail? Fuck you. Like he like he would be saying to the victims like, oh, doesn't it feel shitty not to have a choice? Yeah. Or doesn't it feel shitty to be at the whims of a seemingly benevolent system that can, by the wills of one interconnected person to you, take your hand off or something like that? Right. Uh, on, on paragraph 181 under a section called strategy, uh, he says the two main tasks for the present are one, <laughs> to promote social stress and instability in industrial society, and two, to develop and propagate an ideology that opposes technology and the industrial system. It's pretty clear that the document before us is two, right? Develop and propagate an ideology that opposes technology. Is, are the bombings number one? To him, yes. I don't think you can make much of a claim that the bombings are number one. (laughs) Why not? This is not a situation where Bill Gates was shaking in his boots about the prospect of a bomb arriving. I mean, most of the time they weren't able to connect these bombings and no one had any idea why they had happened. So it is stressful when people die, but three people over whatever it is, a 20-year period, is not like the most stressful thing he could have done. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And he doesn't make the case for the people he does bomb. This is, if justice was on his side, I would want more of a John Brown presence here. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. This I would want some claim to justice if there was justice on his side. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I'm, just, I'm trying to think of, like, who I would have to be to have a math PhD that was acclaimed by my, like, advisor and all who read it from a prestigious math program, and then to feel like I had done something so worthless I had to leave society. I don't know that it's related to his feeling of worthlessness that he left society, right? It could be a, a very much an outward judgment. I mean, if the prestige accrued to him by having written a successful math PhD doesn't entice him to stay in society, like what is making him leave it? Well, that's not all that much prestige, number one. And like, and part of his problem is that he views this as like a subversion of something realer, right? So even if he got a lot of accolades, he suspects that those people don't really get it. Yeah. I mean, I I have felt, I've even felt it a little bit being back in Maine, that feeling of loneliness, of feeling sort of rejected and inadequate and inferior and sort of trying to figure out how to think about yourself if you haven't like run into anybody who likes you in some period of time. And it's a shitty feeling. And it's very easy to like read newspapers and be like, I hate all these fucking people. And I I mean, I don't know to what extent everyone has felt that, but I have felt that before. And I cannot even begin to imagine what it'd be like to have that be your entire social experience in your life. That. Yeah. Maybe I could ask this. What does it take to get from that feeling to I'm going to the woods? I don't, I don't. All of us who don't flee to the woods find some way to get past that moment. So I, you have to get out of yourself. Yeah. So what does it mean for someone to go to the woods and be like, I'm deciding not to get out of myself ever. I'm going to freeze right. this moment and live in it. Yeah, exactly. That's the danger, right? It's, this is something we've talked about on the podcast a lot. It's like in those moments, even though it feels like you're filled with grievance and other people are letting you down, like the way out of that dark like hole is to try to find some community to try to help someone else go to a meeting, do something. 
Because if you go the other way, it's just not clear what breaks that pattern. Right. I mean, I I can imagine hating myself so deeply and so completely that, like, going to a cabin in the woods is a way of, like, you know, cask of amontilladoing that part of myself that was always this huge source of pain and embarrassment and shame, like the part of me that had to deal with other people. And of, like, I don't know, just having, like, a fire sale of myself and... uh Pretending that the parts of me that embarrass me and make other people laugh at me don't exist by being alone all the time. Yeah. That seems like a really straightforward, like, dude thing to do to me. To ultimately to feel better about yourself? Or to only, like, not not to give yourself self-esteem, right? But just to decrease the level of pain of being alive and around other people. Be- yeah, you go there because it's safer there. Yeah, exactly. That's right. No matter how shameful you are, if it's not being witnessed, if you're not feeling like that shameful,ness that whatever's that fucked upness, that rejectability in yourself, if that isn't being, if you're not forced to recognize that because you're actually like alone, there you'd experience some relief. I think. I also think there's some idea of purity. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a kind of purity in the idea of I'm going to cut all people off from me i'm going to like dispense with all my striving toward society because of my failures in my efforts to do that thing i think maybe i wonder if it's not a certain kind of personality that doesn't also value that kind of purity at the very moment that we're saying they experience all this pain Mm -hmm. those two things don't have to go together yeah i think very often they don't yeah like there's also this feeling of um like, if I try to imagine being understanding to a person who wronged me, what I'm really doing is trying to imagine what the world is like from their perspective and to see how I could be, like, other than I think I am to myself through other people's eyes, right? And then there are some people who think that that's not only too difficult, it's, like, it's demeaning to them, that they have to cast their mind out of their own life and into somebody else's head. And to a person who's like that, like a black-and-white world where... People are either with you or against you. People are sources of pain or sources of comfort. Like, that's a radicalizing way to live, right? Where, like, if you have some little, like, argument you have with yourself, when there's no need or cause to imagine how it sounds from somebody else's perspective, that argument can just amplify itself over and over again every time you have it with yourself. Until I can easily imagine you got to kill people. Or yourself, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Except you might have too much ego to kill yourself uh, in a certain way. Which like, might belie your certain, the project that got you out there in the first place, if mm-hmm. you have that much ego. Exactly. I mean, I think about Thoreau going, deciding to like be alone and Thoreau being sort of not particularly uh, pleasant and agreeable all the time, but he still is, is a social being even when he's sort of not social. He has a habit of being like... I myself, like, I don't care about fancy duds, and I just, like, talk to real, like, farmer talk to whoever comes to visit me. But there's still all of these other people who get to tell anecdotes about him being a grump, and that is somehow very different than to actually be isolated and writing letters to your family where you're being like, this is all your fault. You have like (laughs) done wrong by me. There really is a kind of dangerous self-seriousness where you're going to the woods as a fuck you to the village that is like so profound. You're sort of losing track of what's even in charge of you. Do you know what I mean? What's making your decisions for yourself? It's really true that being 
alone or like more particularly not accountable to other people socially or whatever, yeah. that's that's a way of making a really intricate machine to live inside of. It, it's exactly not simplifying to be alone, you know? Uh, when I um, when I was living with my ex, I I realized that like some of the TV shows that we were watching were bad, like mm-hmm. really bad. And I like, I would have these moments, usually moments that I was alone and I'd be like, man, I don't, I can't believe I'm like wasting precious hours watching this like bad TV. I only want to watch the good TV, but I can't because mm-hmm. I'm with another person, you know? And, you know, I, I tried to say like, maybe we should only watch the good TV. Once it's bad, just turn it off. But then that's, <laughs> there's tension there between mm-hmm. me and another person now. And if I want none of that tension and if I'm at all worried in analogous ways, like I myself was worried about the bad TV, then one option, I guess, is like tear it all down, be an, be an, a nation of one, right? Right. Because then you have no one to answer to and all of your bad TV uh, life decisions can remain angelly pure. You can have to embroil yourself in none of the trashy TV. Mm-hmm. The only way right. to get to really none is to be alone about it. Freedom Club, total fucking yeah. solitude. Autonomy as absolute pure nothingness but you. There you, as far as the eye can see, you are inside your own self. Nobody bothering you. What could Unsullied, be more of a recipe? Unalloyed. Yeah. Finally, I can see myself. Would be like the temptation, right? Yeah. But isn't he just another hurting... He's another hurting dude who doesn't know what to do with that hurt and frustration, yeah. that sort of throbbing sense of like, I don't know, powerlessness and grievance. And, and what I think to myself is like, that totally isn't uncommon. That isn't exceptional. Um, you don't need to blackmail the New York Times or bomb anyone. Yeah, yeah. He strikes me as very childish. Not only in the sense of like not being able to deal with emotions or other people, but in the sense of requiring the world to be a utterly black and white place uh, for it to make sense and for him to feel like he can move through it in any kind of safety. Uh, one of the ways in which it is childish also, I believe, is that he becomes obsessed with his disempowerment, like so mm-hmm. many Elliot Rogers and, and school yeah. shooters in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a... I do think there's a real danger that is inherent in all of us, though, to become a little bit obsessed with your disempowerment. I, I think yes. that like the, that little TV story I told as a very low stakes anecdote is, is a moment where I think you glimpse disempowerment and you threaten to become obsessed with it or you threaten to sort of push the envelope on that disempowerment and you can excuse, I think, all kinds of behavior under the auspices of getting your autonomy back. Mm-hmm. And that is a very right. dangerous but not all that unpopular tendency, particularly in white men, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a thing that can happen to a person in a moment for a week at a particular year after a breakup like that that obsession and the behavior that you can self condone is a is a risk I think like lurking out there. Mm-hmm. I have received a package here in Maine. Addressed to Eric G. From Ken Bauman in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Let's see. Okay. 
Oh my god. Yep, here they are. <laughs> Welp. I'm gonna open this fucking evidence bag, it looks like, and pick up a book that the Unabomber once owned. In uh, thumbing through this book, I, myself, am checking my own hands to see if there's any sort of Unabomber dirt getting onto me. This is incredible to be holding. You know, not because I'm such a huge fan or anything like that of the Unabomber, but just to think about all the havoc he wrought and a lot of it stemmed in his mind from this book. And here is the book now in my own little cabin in Maine. I can't believe they're here. I look forward to explaining this one day to the FBI. 